My topic is the Rebetzin. First of all, that's quite a topic. And second of all, I'm one of those old-fashioned people who thinks that a woman should talk about the Rebetzin rather than a man. I really do believe that. But here I am, <laughs> talking about the Rebetzin. I have my notes. I prepared this speech. I wrote a bunch of details about her life that we know. And I'm thinking to myself as I'm standing here, and as I was preparing, I thought the same thing. But this is not supposed to be a history lesson. I'm not here to talk about the Rebetzin because she was an important person and we need to know the story of her life. The Chlal Yidin are not historians. History is a field that in and of itself has no life. History is only useful if it teaches something. In other words, history is only useful if history isn't history, if it's current. And certainly to talk about the Rebetzin, it, it needs to be more than just a nice story about a wonderful lady who none of us knew. So I hope that this will be the point. I hope that we don't, we don't walk away from hearing some nice stories saying, wow, she was a really nice lady, she was really sweet and nice and smart and kind, all the other things that people say about the Rebetzin. But that will get something which is really who the Rebetzin was and is. That has to do with ourselves and with our future and with our practical lives and decisions we make. Because as underwhelming and as secret as the Rebetzin was, she lived like the Rebbe. So we should be a little bit better. Really. Posh it. Better as Yidin, servants of the Ebishter. And we, you know, none of us mind hearing stories, but most of us mind being told that we should change who we are. And that's really what this is about. Honestly, the Rebbe and the Rebetzin are not about us liking them and liking ourselves. The Rebbe and the Rebetzin are about us re- respecting them and growing, changing ourselves. And I think this is very critical when you talk about the Rebetzin's life because all we have are anecdotes, all we have are stories. The Rebetzin didn't say, do this or do that. She never told anybody to do anything. Um, so it's important that the goal, the end should be that we learn a lesson that will change us in some way. Uh, so let me begin with this. The Rebbe made the Rebetzin a Rebetzin. In my opinion, I don't think it's only my opinion, I think it's a fact. The Rebetzin did not want to be a Rebetzin. The Rebetzin would say repeatedly, I'm married to a Rebbe, but I'm not a Rebetzin. It's his job, it's not my job. He accepted his half of the responsibility, I'm not accepting my half of the responsibility. The Rebetzin did not see herself as a Rebetzin, in a public way, certainly not. And the Rebbe, of course, honored that. The Rebetzin became a Rebetzin for most Lubavitcher Chassidim after she passed away. There were those who knew her, no question about it. And they're the ones who share the story of, the, of their relationships with us and reveal the, the mystery that was the Rebetzin Chayim Mushka. But the Rebbe made her a Rebetzin. The Rebbe wanted the Rebetzin to be a public person. The Rebbe wanted that we should talk about her. The Rebbe wanted that we should have her picture in our home. Because the Rebbe wanted that she should be an influence in our lives. And all of this, the Rebbe started after the Rebetzin passed away. During her physical lifetime, the Rebbe didn't talk about her either. When the Rebetzin passed away, the Rebbe began to talk about her a lot, an awful lot. The Rebbe made campaigns. The Rebbe made fabrengens. The Rebbe spoke sikhs. The Rebbe gave out my morim for her schus. And to inspire us to have a relationship with her. Um, just to give you several anecdotes to support this. The first is that Rebetzin passed away a Tuesday night to a Wednesday when Chobay Shvat was Wednesday that year. The Rebetzin passed away late Tuesday night after midnight the Rebetzin passed away. Her Guf Kaddish was brought back to the Rebbe's house. The Tahara was done in the house. The Levaya left from the Rebbe's house. I think it was in the morning. I don't think it was noon. Um, the Rebbe, I remember the Oren coming down the steps. The Rebbe followed behind the Oren on President Street. They walked all the way till 770, it was hard for the Rebbe to walk. And then they went to the Beis HaChayim, and the Rebbe came back, and he sat shiver in his house. So, Chav Beishvat was Wednesday. 
Yeshebert Jacobson, the father of the famous Jacobsons, uh, had a newspaper which still exists called the Algemeine Journal, which then was more Yiddish than English. Now it's a combination of Yiddish and English. And he printed for that Shabbos three pictures of the Rebetzin. In other words, within a day, he, the newspaper came out for Shabbos. This was Wednesday. By Thursday, he had already written an article, found space in his paper, wrote about the Rebetzin's life, described the Levaya, and printed several pictures of her. And uh, the Rebbe thanked him, which was a big surprise to us because we knew how private the Rebbe had been and we felt that this was a violation of her privacy. And the Rebbe said, thank you. The Rebbe thanked him for publishing her pictures. And as time would show, the Rebbe would repeatedly encourage people to include the Rebbe in their lives by having her picture and telling her stories because the Rebbe, like I said, the Rebbe wanted the Rebbe to be our Rebbe And the Rebbe that she was not able to be during her physical lifetime for reasons that only she knew, the Rebbe made her at Ebbetson posthumously after she passed away. There's no doubt in my mind. There's a fascinating note, fascinating note, written to a very, very big Rav named Harav Gavriel Tzinir. Gavriel Tzinir is a Hasidic Rav. He's originally a proper Hasid, not Chabad. He became close to the Rebbe when his Rebbe, who must have been a real god, passed away. And he had a very special relationship with the Rebbe. He would ask the Rebbe all kinds of questions, and the Rebbe would answer questions that he asked that most other people the Rebbe wouldn't answer. And he wrote the Rebbe a note after the Rebbe passed away, protesting the fact that her picture was printed, especially a color picture. And he wrote to the Rebbe that he felt it was wrong, and he actually finishes the letter with the words, Ashley Hadoya Shagadeilov Shemim Muktana. It was rude of him to tell the Rebbe that he thinks that it was a mistake to publish the Everton's picture, and he finished the letter by saying, fortune of the generation where the great ones can tolerate listening to the little ones when the little ones are right. So this letter that he wrote to the Rebbe, the Rebbe doctored. He took his pen and began to move the words around using arrows and circles, crossing out certain words, adding certain words, and draws the opposite conclusion from his words, from his Yeredev, from his Shulchan Aruch, the laws of Tzniyas, and there's no... Based on the sources you're citing, when you look at them this way, the conclusion is, you should have a picture of the Rebbe. The Rebbe does mention, by the way, that in the second print of that pamphlet that he references, they took out the color picture and left only black and white photographs. There's a difference between a color and a black and white, apparently in Halacha. And the Rebbe writes to him that the reason why people are disseminating a photograph, the Rebbe used the Lashem, the Moshifim, is because it increases in the Vachayit and the Libri. When the Rebbe passed away, the slogan that the Rebbe invoked and used it a whole year, the living will take the heart. And of course, part of the reason the Rebbe used that expression is because the Rebbe's name was Chaya. So it was a Loshon. The living will take the heart. And when you read this note to Rabbi Tzinev, it becomes very clear, at least to me, that the Rebbe was saying, it's good. There should be a picture of the Rebbe in your home. You should talk about the Rebbe the Rebbe wanted us to learn from her life and from her example. And for this reason, we have to talk about her. I, I, I hear from people who object and they feel that it's wrong and so on and so forth. The basis, I think, I really believe this, that after she passed away, the Rebbe said, now is the time to celebrate her life, to talk about her, to bring her into our world, uh, because we need her. We need the Rebbe. So we're going to talk about her for whatever time we have. The Rebetzin was royalty. She was. Now we say that word and don't think anything of it. It's cool, right? It's cool to be royalty. Guess what? It's not cool at all. It's an enormous burden. When you think of the Rebetzin as royalty, you think about how smart she was, how sharp she was, how beautiful she was. You forget the responsibility. Royalty is an enormous, enormous responsibility. And it also expects a lot of you. We never think in those terms. Those of you who are children of Shluchim in a Chabad house understand in a Zeid Ampin what that means. From a very young age, you had to behave a certain way, not because of who you were, but because of who your parents were. And that's not comfortable. And I'm sure there's a lot of girls who are Shluchim in this room, so you know what I'm talking about. But multiply that times a million. That's how the Rebetzin grew up. She was the granddaughter of a Rebbe. She was the daughter of a Rebbe. She was the wife of a Rebbe. On one level that means that she was somehow not entitled to a private life. 
which is, as you would say it, not fair. But there's also the responsibility. A, a, a prince, a princess, has to fill that role. And you don't, you don't get a contract, you know. When you take a job, you get a contract. You agree to do the job. You don't agree to do a job. A prince and a princess don't sign a contract. They're born into royalty. The Rebetzin was born into royalty. She was very proud. She felt that she was privileged. But there's also an enormous burden. The burden is that she was, from the moment she was born, a public person. She took that responsibility very seriously. If you speak to people who know her, the Rebetzin felt that she needed to always look good because of who she was. She didn't like it. The Rebetzin was a hostess. There were people coming into her home. Not a million people, but many people. The Rebetzin worked very hard to anticipate exactly who was coming into her home. If it was children, she prepared things for children. If it was adults, she prepared things for adults. And she would think about what you would like. She felt very responsible as the Rebetzin, that means as the daughter of the Friedrich Rebbe and as the wife of the Rebbe, to fill the role of a princess and a queen. And from what I understand, it was hard for her. It would be hard for anybody. Imagine always having to look good. Always. Always having to be your best. It's expected of you. Because you're... And this is a little tiny aspect of why the Rebetzin was so private. Because the Rebetzin didn't like it. Some people love that. Some people love being a queen and a princess. The Rebbe's mother was a Rebetzin. Par excellence. The Rebbe's mother loved the public role. She loved being the Rebetzin. She loved hosting people. She loved meeting people and greeting people and so on. For the Rebetzin was a very, very big anstrengendish. It was hard for her to do. She did it. And she did it very well. I have a, a friend of mine, a friend of mine, he's quite a bit older than I am, um, whose mother was a child in front of the Rebetzin. And he remembers going to the Rebbe's house as a child, as a little boy. He never went as a teenager, but a little boy. So I asked him, what is recollections? He had no memories. The only thing he says, the Rebetzin looked beautiful. A little boy, he looked, she looked gorgeous, beautiful. It took the Rebetzin a lot of effort. And she felt obligated to do this as a Rebetzin. And it was hard for her. It really was hard for her. And at least on a certain level, from what I understand, from the people that I've spoken to who were close to her in the house, she, she didn't like it. She didn't like it. She wished she didn't have to you know, dress up and make everything perfect because of her role. And it's in, on some level an explanation, on a very simple level, an explanation for why she was so private. The Rebetzin also was unbelievably nostalgic. The Rebetzin left Lubavitch at 15. 15. Now, you're all older than 15, I surmise. Right? 15 is, is big and little. The Rebetzin lived 87 years. She always lived in Lubavitch in her head. Lubavitch was Ganeden. Materially, Lubavitch was a city with no paved roads. Materially, Lubavitch was a place where eight months a year there was mud on the ground and you had to walk on planks of wood so you shouldn't get yourself off a chazet. But her, her whole life she remembered Lubavitch. Lubavitch was the world she was comfortable in. Lubavitch was the place where she, if she would have it her way, would have spent her whole life. Lubavitch was a holy world. Lubavitch was a, a peaceful world. Lubavitch was a very smart world. Do you know what a smart world means? I'm talking to Americans, yeah? And I'm also an American, so I can explain this to you. A smart world is a world where people say few words and much is understood. A stupid world is where people say many words and little is understood. Get it? The Rebison was that kind of a woman. And she was surrounded by Americans. <laughs> Which means they say a lot that mean little. Everything was an inference. That's how she was raised. You said one word, two words, three words. It was a whole conversation. And it was understood and it was clear. This was her world. And people who knew her when she was in her 70s and in her 80s, she was always talking about Lubavitch. And the Bachrim and Lubavitch and the world of Lubavitch, and the energy of Lubavitch, the holiness of Lubavitch. And again, I want to repeat this a second time. Lubavitch was a different world 
not because it was physically poor or people was walking in muddy streets, but because it was a, a world of really, really peaceful, smart people. It was a holy world. Holy worlds are not fires. Holy worlds are deeper worlds. And in a deeper world, like I said to you earlier, people knew when they didn't belong someplace and walked away. In America, you know the old joke about a guy comes home from shul and he says to his wife, today the people in shul gave me a hint. They gave me a hint that I should never come back. She said, yeah, what was the hint? <laughs> they picked me up and carried me out. <laughs> <laughs> the Rebison gave such signals that many people didn't get. She was that kind of a person. That was the generation, it was the world she came from. A world of very, very smart people who in very little said very a lot. And uh, we're, we're to totally different than that. And it's part of the generational separation. But her whole life, she remembered Lubavitch. The Bachrim. The Bachrim, when she, again, I heard just some people. When she talked about the Bachrim, she was describing what it sounded like brothers. The Bachrim were just warriors for the Elish. Their whole world was davening and learning in Hasidus. But in this higher way, in this peaceful, not so noisy, conflicted way, but in a very peaceful way. And even though she was only 15, she was actually less than 15, she was 14 and a half. When she left Lubavitch, that was her world. She never forgot it. And it further explains the, um, the uh, distance that she felt from us. It was hard for her to relate to us because we were very different. And uh, you want to call good different or bad different. It, it's different, different. Um, the Rebbe understood us so well and spoke our language so brilliantly. Um, but the Rebbe was changing himself. There was going out of what his world was because the Rebbe was in that kind of a world. We're Americans. What can I tell you? We love ourselves. <laughs> Thank God. We try at least, okay. Um, the Rebbe was also very, very dedicated, very loyal to her family. Her family meant everything to her. And of course, it's, it's, it's not so hard to be loyal to a family like that when your family is holy and wise and kind and generous and Allah But the Rebetzin was very, very proud of who she was and where she came from. Just to give you a couple of little anecdotes. One of them, which I find very interesting, is this. The Rebetzin had the Tzemach Tzedek's Rebetzin's Leichter. The Rebetzin's name was Chaya Mushka. She was the namesake of the Tzemach Tzedek's Rebetzin, whose name was also Rebetzin Chaya Mushka. As we all know, the Rebbe and the Rebetzin carried the same names as the Tzemach Tzedek and the Tzemach Tzedek's Rebetzin. In fact, the Rebbe's father, the Rebbe's father, Alevit, in his letters to the Rebbe by his chasaneh, points that out again and again and again. You and your kala carry the names of the Tzemach Tzedek and his uh, better half or other half. So the Rebetzin had the Rebetzin Chaya Mushka's leichter. The Rebetzin Chaya Mushka one of her inyanim was that when she benched licht, she didn't want anybody else to know. There were people in the house, especially in the later years when she needed physical help, but she always arranged that when she benched licht, nobody was in the same room where she was benching licht. So she said this, I don't use my elderbubba's leichter, I don't use the candlesticks of my great-grandmother, and her expression was, who am I, a simple woman, to use the life of such a wonderful Rebetzin? But I put them down. I look at them as I bench my own life. That's what she said. I look at those candles and I feel connected to the family. I have a friend who knew the Rebetzin personally, who was in the Rebetzin's house a couple of months before the Rebbe passed away in the winter of Tavshin Memchas, 1988. And he told me the story that they came as a family, the grandparents, the parents, some of the children, to see the Rebbe And um, the Rebbe walked them to the door. And as he was standing by the door, the Zayda says, we didn't sing. The grandchildren had to sing. They had to sing with the Rebbe So one of the little boys sang the Benini. You know the Bainini, right? The Bainini, nigga, that's how the girls get the tune correctly. <laughs> I figured that out already. Um, and he sang the Bainini. Then Bainini is the feed, the Kedavas Nigan. And he sang, I guess he sang by himself, it was at Foba Mitzvah, I'm assuming. And uh, the Rebetzin stood and listened. And when he finished, she had tears in her eyes. 
And he says to her, he told me the story himself, he says to her, this is the Negan of the Friedrich Rebbe. And she says, I know he was my father. But the, the, the I know and the, he was my father, she wasn't telling it to him because he didn't know. She was telling it to him because of how much it meant to her. And uh, the Rebbe was very proud, very connected to her roots, and it meant an awful lot to her. I always ask people the, the obvious question, what do we know about the Rebbe What do we know about the Rebbe There's really a very simple answer to that question. Know what we know about the Rebbe Absolutely nothing. That's the correct answer to the question. The only thing we know is we don't know anything. Because we really, really don't know. But a couple of little uh, details and some stories that reveal different parts of the character. The Rebetzin was a badass. How do you describe a badass? How do you describe a badass? The only way to describe a badass is to identify one, and they don't grow on trees. A badass means a person with depth, with integrity, with responsibility, and with courage. That's for starters, a badass. A badass a person doesn't say a lot. Abadas always has an eye on the prize, never loses sight of what's important, and gets what has to get done efficiently, quietly, seriously, responsibly, and discreetly. The Rebison was an incredible Abadas, and we know a number of anecdotes that reflect this. Number one, I find this amazing. The Friedrich Rebbe in the 20s were living in Russia, we had all of the Tzadis. For whatever reason, the government of Russia put all kinds of punishments on him. One of the many punishments that the Soviet re- regime put on the Friedrich Rebbe was that he was not allowed to have access to money. He couldn't have a bank account. I don't know the reason, but this was the fact. So the Friedrich Rebbe had to give somebody else the power of attorney. Somebody else had to be legally responsible for his finances, and it was legally registered in the Soviet regime that this person is responsible for his finances. Who do you think he chose? His daughter. And she was 22 years old. And the Rebbe had a lot of other people to choose. His mother was alive, he had a Rebbe, he had big chassidim. The Friedrich Rebbe chose the Rebbe Zechai Mushka. And you know why he chose the Rebbe Zechai Mushka? Because he trusted her. And you know why he trusted her? Because the Rebbe understood where this is. The, the Rebbe was so underwhelming, she was so not seen. But the Friedrich Rebbe appreciated that this is a girl that she, he could trust with matters of life and death. When it comes to finance, he was able to trust her, and that's why he entrusted her with this um, burden. She, she managed to have his money. You probably have heard this from all of your teachers, that the, about six or seven years ago, they published a book of letters from the previous Rebbe to the Rebbe and the Rebetzin. And there's a series of exchanges, which is almost funny, where the Friedrich Rebbe writes to the Rebbe, contemplate well the precious pearl that Hashem has given you. And may God Almighty give you chokhma bina das to understand completely what the situation is. Be'emes la'amita. Just the Friedrich right to the Rebbe. So the Rebbe writes back to the Friedrich Rebbe, I have no idea what you're talking about. Six months later, the Rebbe writes him again. Have you yet figured out the special pearl to which I refer? Or do you still not know my riddle? So the Rebbe writes the Friedrich Rebbe a second time, I don't know what you're talking about. So in the third letter, which is a couple months after that, the Rebbe writes, I'm talking about my daughter, your wife. Now it's beautiful, right? The father says to son-in-law, you know, he's such a wonderful girl. <laughs> but first of all, you're talking about a Rebbe and a Rebbe, not just your father and your husband to be in a good Hashem, it's Hashem. Um, but what the Rebbe should write to the Rebbe, you need Chochmah bin Avadas to understand this It gives you an idea that... You know, the basic truth. We don't know anything about this person. She was an incredible badass. Just to go on. When uh, in Rostov, there was a non-Lababach yeshiva called Navardek. In Leningrad, I'm sorry. In other words, during those terrible years in Russia, when all the yeshivas closed and everybody ran for the hills, and the Fidikeva stood, and Tem Khatmimim stood, there were others who, at least for a time, held their ground. Navardek were very, very elche, very, very elche, Musaniks, misnagdim, but very elche. And there was a Navadik yeshiva in Leningrad. The Rebetzin would bring them food every day. And it was Mesidas Nefesh Mamesh. She had to walk through Leningrad. She had to take a bus or a train to the other side of the city. It's a big city. 
to bring them food, it had to be done discreetly. And of course, it was easier for a girl to do this than for a man. A man looks, you know, obviously like a frumerid, like an erlecherid. But this is one of the things that the Rebetzin did. And again, the reason she was given this job is A, she was able to do it. And B, she was able to do it in a kind of way that only a badass can. To do it without being seen. It's, you know, it's a reflection of her uh, muhus. When the Rebbe Rayat, when the Friedrich Rebbe, was sent off into exile after he was let out of jail, went to Kostrama, he was supposed to go for three years and he spent ten days, he took his daughter. The Rebbe Tzachai Mushka went with him and she was with him when the news came, when the news was announced that he's being let go, she was with him in the room, there was nobody else around. So the way the story is told, she got up and she sang and she danced, Nyet Nyet Nikavo. People said that her song was Nyet Nyet Nikavo. She was so happy for her father that he was free. Um, that summer, the Friedrich Rebbe was contemplating whether he should leave Russia or not. And uh, he wouldn't leave Russia without his father's permission. So at the end of the summer, he traveled to Rostov, which is in the Ukraine, to visit the Tzian, the resting place of the Rebbe Rashab, to decide whether he should leave Russia or not. He traveled with his daughter, the Rebbe Tzachayimushka. Again, an example, if you understand the nature of that trip and the danger of that trip, you appreciate how the Friyadik Rebbe appreciated who the Rebbe Tzachayimushka was. Another example, the Rebbe had a brother named Label. Label. Label lived in Berlin together with the Rebbe and the Rebbe. And I believe, I don't know if this is true, I, I've heard this, that Label was once beaten up by the brown shirts. When the Nazis, the Nazis had these brown shirts, which would later become the Gestapo and the SS. Brown shirts were basically street thugs who would go around beating people up, intimidating people so that they would vote for the Nazi party. And of course, they, they loved beating up on Jews. Label once did not hire Hitler and they beat him. into Mazen. They had to leave Germany. And they left Germany. Now Label decided to move on to Israel. But for reasons that had to do with papers, the only way he can go from France to Israel was to go back into Berlin and pick up documents which the Germans had. And he really was not looking forward to that trip. And the Rebetzin said, I'll go for you. And the Rebetzin went to the Rebbe's brother, came to Berlin, took care of him to be taken care of, and she was identified as Schneerson. You married name Schneerson. What's your maiden name? Schneerson. What's your mother's maiden name? Schneerson. They never heard something like this in their life. So they said to her, when we come to Paris, we're going to look you up. And they did. They did. When the Germans came to Paris, they went to look up the Rebbe and the Rebbe because they didn't believe that there could be a person with the Schneerson for Nalazaiten. And the Rebbe and the Rebbe had literally left a day or two before. Point is, she went into the lion's jaw to help her brother-in-law, because she had that kind of poise. She had that kind of ability to keep it together under the most difficult of circumstances. She was a deep badass. And deep on a godly level, not just on a psychological level. And uh, when there was a need, she was utilized because of the depth that she had. And the final example I'm going to give you, which is closer to us, is... After the Rebbe became Rebbe, people don't know this. After the Rebbe became Rebbe, the Rebbe traveled a number of times. I know for a fact that she was in London on one trip, she went to see her sister-in-law, the Rebbe had a brother, who passed away very, very young, and left a, a wife and a little daughter. The Rebbe went to London to spend time with his sister, with her sister-in-law and nephew, and um, niece. Uh, the Rebbe also was in, the Rebbe also traveled for other reasons, but one of the reasons that the Rebbe traveled was... When Lubavitcher Hasidim came out of Russia, they were countryless, right? After the war, there were displaced persons, DPs, camps for hundreds of thousands of Jews who no longer had a country, no longer had a passport, and frankly didn't want a country, didn't want a passport. They wanted to move away and start over. So for a number of years, they were literally living on charity. Meaning to say they were being supported by various philanthropic organizations, living in Germany and then later in France, waiting to be given immigration status to a new country. So in 1953, I think, or 52 yet, the Rebetzin went for the Rebbe to see Anash. She went to see how Chassidim were living, and it was not comfortable living. That these big, big houses, like palaces, old palaces that were no longer being used, every family had a room. They shared one bathroom. It was very, very difficult. And the Rebetzin went to see how Anash are living. And 
Most people would not have known who she was if they saw her. She came to Paris as one of the people who took care of her said she didn't need a lot of help. She knew Paris. She lived in Paris. She got around the city all by herself. She did what she needed to do and she came to see Chassidim up close. To see and not be seen is the point. She wanted to see Vos Machan Anash, how Chassidim are doing in the kind of a way that they would not even realize that they were being observed. She came back and reported to the Rebbe and again, this is what people say that when she returned from a trip the Rebbe began to give different kinds of instructions to Anash about where they should go, whether they should move to Israel or stay in Europe and so on. But it's again, it's an example of who she was. A very deep person who had the ability to do very, very difficult and responsible tasks almost without being seen. And it was a reflection of her, this quality, her das. And of course, the greatest thing that Emerson did in her life was give us the Rebbe. The Friedrich Rebbe passed away and Hasidim were looking for a Rebbe. And of course, Sidim wanted the Rebbe to be Rebbe, and a lot of pressure was brought to bear. But again, I was not born in 1950. My father was before his bar mitzvah, so I don't know these stories personally. But these are the stories that Hasidim relate that the Rebetzin said to her husband. The Rebetzin said to the Rebbe, if you don't become Rebbe, the 30 years of Mesidas Nefesh that my father gave will end in nothing. I cannot see that the 30 years of sacrifice that my father made should end in nothing and she encouraged the Rebbe to become a Rebbe. And she bore the brunt of that. She paid the price. The Rebbe gave the Rebbe to Chassidim. And she did it happily. She did it completely. Completely. The Rebbe gave away the Rebbe to Chassidim completely. And she lived for the rest of her life, which is almost 40 years, with one goal. To make it easier for the Rebbe to Rebbe Chassidim. Um, Mrs. Sternberg of Langezunt, who knew her very personally, relates how the Rebetzin's entire worldview was how she can maximize the amount of time the Rebbe has with Hasidim. It wasn't about her at all, which is a remarkable thing to do this for so many years. Now, I'm going to share with you some anecdotes about the Rebetzin's relationship to the Rebbe that we know after the Rebbe was Rebbe that are significant and interesting. The first, I don't remember where I heard it. I heard it relatively recently. It's powerful. And I, I believe it's true. I wouldn't tell if I didn't think so, but it is a bit sensitive. That when the Rebbe became Rebbe, the Rebbe Tzachayim Mushke called a group of elder Chassidim. And she said to them as follows. Traditionally, the Rebbe have looked after their husbands. That's what the Rebbe does. She takes care of the Rebbe. And she said, the Rebetzins also told the Rebbe when to stop, when it was enough. In other words, the Rebetzin had the role of telling the Rebbe, now you have to take care of your health, you have to stop, you have to rest, you have to eat, you have to take care of yourself. So the Rebetzin told these Hasidim the following, I'll take care of him, but I'm not going to tell him what to do. I'm not going to stop him ever. That's your job. But was the Rebetzin said, that she, she, she feels prepared to take care of the Rebbe, which she did. But to tell the Rebbe when he should stop his involvement with Hasidim, she told him straight, I will not do that. And if you know anything about the Rebbe, the Rebbe didn't take that from anybody. <laughs> the Rebbe gave of himself also like no other Rebbe gave. That's number one. Number two, the Rebbe stayed out, he stayed in 770 very late. Very late. Three nights a week was Yechidus. Yechidus was... All night. Sunday, Tuesday, Thursday. And later on, by the way, it became Sunday and Thursday. The Rebbe would sit, if need be, till 7 in the morning. So at 8 o'clock at night, the Rebbe would see people. In the summertime, he would stop at 9.30 for Mariv. Otherwise, the Rebbe sat with people. As long as there were people, he sat. And people couldn't believe it. You walk to the Rebbe at 3 in the morning, and he's wide awake, and he's so sharp. How come he's not tired? No one understood how come the Rebbe's never tired. The Rebbe sat in her house waiting for the Rebbe. Now, if there was nights that were not Yechidus, Monday, Wednesday, what's a Shabbos? They became early. You know what early was? Midnight. Midnight, literally. Friday night also. The Rebbe would go home very late. The Rebbe David Maidav went to his room. The Rebbe didn't go home right away. They went home late. And the Rebbe waited for the Rebbe. Now, to, just to give you another aspect, when the Rebbe became older, and especially when the Rebbe was not, the Rebbe was not so well, the Rebbe changed his schedule. The Rebbe started going home much earlier, like as early as 7 o'clock. Um, there was no Yechidis in the 80s when I was growing up already. 
Um, and the Rebbe went home much earlier. He, he, the Rebbe worried about the Rebbe's also. But for 30 years, until Lamed Ches for sure, the Rebbe came home at all hours of the night. And whenever he came home, the Rebbe was awake. Always. And there was hot, fresh food waiting for the Rebbe. One of the great miracles of the Rebbe is how do you keep food hot and fresh for hour and hour and hour and hour? And you have no idea when it's going to be eaten. It's not like he gives you a half an hour notice and coming home in half an hour. There was no such thing. The Rebbe just walked in and the food was ready and fresh and hot for the Rebbe to eat. Somebody once commented to the Rebbe, and one of her friends, one of her childhood friends, that it must be so difficult for her that she has no idea when her husband is coming home and he comes home so late and so on. And the Rebbe was hurt by it and she snapped back. Whenever he comes home, I'm awake. And the food is hot and warm. The idea that somehow the Rebbe was hurting the Rebbe was something that she didn't even want to hear. This is the kind of dedication she had. She waited, she waited, waited for the Rebbe. Waited all night. And she was very happy to see him when he came home. Because this was her purpose. Her purpose was to give the Rebbe to Chesidim. And that when the Rebbe came home, they would have a place that was allowing the Rebbe to do what he needed to do in that environment and so on and so forth. This is an interesting story. <laughs> the other side of the coin. Um, I heard this from someone who doesn't exaggerate. I, I believe that, again, if I didn't believe the story was true, I wouldn't tell it. But I don't know. You probably don't know if the story is true unless you hear it from a very, very direct source. The Rebbe once came home and realized that the Rebbe had dozed off. She was sitting in a chair. She fell asleep. So he walked back to 770. He didn't want to wake her. She woke up and realized that Everett had been in the house. He was able to realize that because of the way the locks were locked or unlocked, she realized. So she immediately called 770 to find out where the Rebbe was. Um, it's the other side of that coin. The Rebbe walked into the house and saw that the Rebbe had fallen asleep. She was waiting for him all night. <laughs> he didn't want to like, wake her up. He walked back to 770, which was an inconvenience. It took time and effort and so on. This is the kind of relationship they had. It's not going to happen to you. Don't worry about it. <laughs> 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 what can I tell you if you want to have a Rebbe for a husband you got to be a Rebbe for a wife and it goes both ways of course um, I, I understand I understand that the Rebbe was, was thinking about the Rebbe the whole day she would call the office all the time one of the things the secretaries did was pick up the phone and talk to her the Rebbe wanted to know what's going on in the course of a day she would call many times what's going on now what's going on now she thought about the Rebbe every minute. From the moment he left the house till the moment he came home, which was most of the 24 hours of each day, the Rebbe thought about him and she would call up every few hours to, to find out what's going on. This was the kind of attention. And by the way, she wasn't a nervous, paranoid kind of a lady. It was just her whole mitzvah was dedicated to this purpose and to this end. And of course... The story that we always tell and we always talk about that we can tell so important is how do you be a wife and a chassid? How do you do that? How do you be a rabbit, a wife and a chassid? And of course the answer is don't worry, you're not going to have that test. That's the answer. <laughs> how do you be a wife and a chassid? And the Rebbe was a wife and a chassid. And of course the examples, the cases that we know of this, the most famous and the most acute is when the Rebbe had his heart attack, Tavshim Lamed Ches, and uh, the doctors said that the Rebbe's life was in danger and the Rebbe needed to go to a hospital and the Rebbe refused to go to a hospital. You all know the story. The end of the story was that they promised the Rebbe that they would not move him and then the Rebbe went to sleep. As soon as the Rebbe fell asleep, pressure was put on the Rebbe that she should overrule her husband and take him to the hospital against her wishes. And everybody felt that way. Except for her. In other words, the biggest Hasidim, the Rebbe's personal secretaries, felt that the Rebbe should be overruled and be taken to the hospital while he slept. And the Rebbe said, you told the Rebbe you're not going to move him. And they said, but it's best for the Rebbe. And the Rebbe said, you can't do this to the Rebbe. You can't lie to him. You told him you're not moving him. And they had an argument. And she finally put it to rest with the famous words, was mein man will, will ich. What my husband wants, I want. Conversation over. There's no, you don't, you don't tell the Rebbe something and then twist his arm. Was my man will, will ich. She was the only one, the only one who was in that room who said, you can't do this to the, you can't play with the Rebbe. You told him something, you're going to keep your word. Which is amazing. Who cared about the Rebbe's physical health more than she did? 
But she understood that for the Rebbe's physical health and for everything else, you cannot trick him. You told him you're going to let him stay in the house, he's staying in the house. And the Rebbe understood quite well the dangers. And she said, no, no, no. You're not moving him against his wishes. And that moment showed what it means to be a wife and a chassid. A wife, you know, totally dedicated to her husband and takes care of him physically and at the same time says, this man, you don't, you don't play games. This. You told him you're going to do something, you do what you say, you don't play around. And of course, the second time when Hasidim saw the dedication that the Rebbe had to the Rebbe and Rechsidis, um was during the fashion of the Sfarim. This is the closest that Ebbetson came to being public. And Ebbetson was so involved in this Sfarim story, the Sfarim saga, or this Sfarim fiasco, which was so difficult for her. It was her sister. It was her nephew. And she loved them very much. She really loved them very much. And uh, she didn't stop loving them ever. And at the same time, she stood with the Rebbe and it, it became clear. You read the stories and you listen to the people who were involved. They were a team. The Rebbe, the, the Rebbe wasn't supporting the Rebbe. They were partners. This issue was their issue. And it was as much her purpose that the Svanim should be the way the Rebbe wanted them as it was the Rebbe's purpose. And she was like a rock. You know, I once heard from Judah Krinsky, that um, they wanted to depose the Rebbe. Ask your questions. And I'm sure you've seen the film. And the purpose of deposing a person, of asking questions was, you ask the same questions over and over and over and over and over again, and you dray a mancha cup until they slip. And they say the wrong thing, and then you jump on it. And they did that to the Rebbe for four hours. And Yudel was nervous. So he said to the Rebbe, you know, they interviewed the Rebbe, and the Rebbe said, don't worry. I think these were the words exactly, she'll pass with flying colors. And she did. They tried every way to fadray in it, the whole thing is trying to catch a person on a vavot. You know, they say one word and then you jump on it. And they tried for two hours to exhaust her. And the end of it all was, as you've seen the film, if you haven't seen the film, you've heard the tape, but I saw the film once myself. And Mr. Schneer said, one more time, in your opinion, to whom do the books belong? And she says in what is a very exhausted voice, you can hear that she's tired. They've just used her up for four hours. The books belong to the Hasidim because my father belonged to the Hasidim. And on the side of the frame, you see the lawyer throwing his pencil down on the table in disgust and frustration because he didn't get anything out of her. And this is, like I said to you, the closest that Ebbetson came to being public. And we saw the dedication, the loyalty that Ebbetson had to the Rebbe. Um, but there's so much more, but you don't have time. But I'll just say one thing. That Ebbetson, I know this from a number of people, had the ability to have a one-way conversation. Many people knew her. Many people talked to her. She was incredibly engaging, incredibly personable, incredibly concerned. But it was like she didn't exist. She never talked about herself. And she never let you go there. She manipulated. She was a princess. She was a queen. She wasn't the same as the people she talked to. But you, the, the, she was never part of the conversation. It was all about you and your family and your friends and so on. The, she was never a part of the conversation. Never. It's remarkable. It's an amazing thing to... To be so warm and so available at the same time, so private. So, and another thing about the Rebbe was she talked to you about what she wanted. I know a lady who said to me she wanted to talk to the Rebbe about politics. She wanted to talk to the Rebbe about ideas, and the Rebbe just didn't want to discuss it with her. So the Rebbe talked to her about fashion. She said to me, "I was disappointed. All she cared about was fashion." And of course, that was such a foolish statement. That's all she discussed with you was fashion, because that's where she was going to go with you. That's how she was. If she didn't want to go. To to a certain place with you, you didn't go there. And she controlled, she managed her conversations with that very, very subtle das that I described before, with few words and nuance. She didn't, you could not take her to a place she didn't want to go in a conversation. This is a true story, I believe. Again, I think the story was written by somebody who personally, it happened with them and they knew that I was personally. There was a conversation about something. I don't know if it was politics or it was... Something. And the Rebbe knew everything. She was very, very smart. She was the Friedrich and Rebbe's daughter. That's pretty good IQ. Brilliant. She knew so much about so many things. Maybe she didn't discuss it with you, but that didn't mean she didn't know it. Maybe she didn't discuss it with you. She was having a conversation with somebody about something, and she said her opinion. And she had strong opinions. So somebody at the table said to her, the Rebbe said by Fabring indifferent. So she repeated herself. And said what her husband said. 
So they said to her, Rebetzin, you said 60 seconds ago different. And she said, this is my opinion. And she said it like a shneerson. She didn't raise her voice. She didn't get angry. But you knew there's no point in asking the question again. The Rebetzin was told that the Rebbe had a different view on a subject and it became hers. It wasn't an act. It wasn't an act. It wasn't to impress you. It wasn't to keep the peace in the Babbage. It was the kind of relationship she had with the Rebbe. If this is what the Rebbe thought, this is what she thought. And she understood it. In other words, she didn't only change her conclusion, she went through in her head the re-rationalization and said, okay, if this is correct, then I understand this to be correct. This is the kind of respect, the kind of respect she had for the Rebbe. And of course, the story that everybody tells, and there's many versions of it, um, the, the recently Jem gave out a series of, 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 of interviews with a Yid who was the Rebetzin's um, podiatrist, the Rebetzin's foot doctor. And you see this guy with a beard and paste and a yarmulke. The first time he came to the Rebetzin, he didn't put on a yarmulke, he had long hair, he was a single guy, not from at all. And you should probably seen the view, the interviews with him, how the Rebetzin asked him if he's married, and he said he's not. And the Rebetzin asked him if he's dating, and he said he is. And the Rebetzin said, you're probably dating Jewish girls. And he said, I hate Jewish girls. I only date chicks. <laughs> and how the Rebetzin very gently navigated him in a direction where he should reconsider his hatred for Jewish girls, and he should start dating Jewish girls. And the Rebetzin said, we'll see what will be. And the guy ended up getting married when he was 40. And he's a from wife, beautiful mishpacha, beautiful story. Which I don't have to tell you, but I just want to tell you this. This man, you watch him interview, I don't know how to say it. He, he said things to the Rebetzin that he shouldn't have said. But one of the things he said to the Rebetzin was, he tells the story himself. I was sitting with the Rebetzin, I said to her, you know, you're such an incredibly sensitive person. You're such a warm person. It's such a pity you never had children. You would have made a great mother. And the Rebetzin looked at him in shock. Because that's really an insensitive thing to say. It's not a nice thing to say. It's not. You don't say that to a woman who's 80 years old. I'm sorry you never had kids. Thank you very much. But he told it to her. And she looked at him like, I can't believe you said that. You know. And then he said that she saw that I wasn't, I wasn't meddling. I, was, I meant it. So she softened and she said, my children are in 770. And uh, she said this to many people. You know, the story with her nephews, right? The Rebetzin had two nephews. The Rebetzin had a niece. The, Rebbe's, the Rebbe had a brother who had a daughter who had two sons. And they lived in Washington. They were, uh, the, the Rebbe's niece and nephew were members of the delegation of the Israeli government to Washington, D.C. And in fact, this is just a little anecdote. During the time that they were there, their second son was born. And the Rebbe sent them an entire minion for a bris including Spitz Chabad, he sent Rabbi Chadikov himself to Washington to participate in their bris. This is how the Rebbe felt about his nephews. They were also royalty to the Rebbe. And they would visit. They would come to the house. They would visit. And of course, the Rebbe brought toys. The Rebbe brought toys. This is how she was. She thought about everybody and everything. She brought toys for the kids to play with. And the kids came to the house. They saw all these new toys. They played with them. And then they turned to her and they said, you know, if you have toys, you must have kids. Where are the kids? And the Rebetzin said, my children are in 770. Now I want to say one more thing. This is the end of my talk. And this to me is very important. And I want to share this with you, even though I'm a man and you're girls. This is what I want to tell you. The source of my information is mostly from interviews that were done by a lady named Mrs. Hager from London. You may have met her. You may know her. You may have seen her interviews. She's teaches something about the Rebetzin, which I think is very important for girls, especially in this generation, to appreciate. I've already tried to describe to you how secret the Rebetzin was, and how she gave you of herself what she chose. She managed all of her relationships. She managed all of her relationships. That's what you do when you're a queen. That's what you do when you're a queen. You can't just no, it's not America where you just hang out all your emotions. Um, but she had different relationships with different people. And what I learned from listening to Mrs. Hager speak is that a lot of the conversations that Ebbetson had were actually her teaching. 
It was never done as instruction. The Rebbe wasn't giving giving lessons. But the people she knew, and the people she was involved with, and the conversations she had with them, if you think about them in hindsight, she wasn't just chatting. She wasn't just showing an interest and a concern. She was educating. And I found this very, very important. And what was her message to women? What was her message to women? The women who knew her personally, the girls who she met. And this is what Mrs. Hager explains, and I think it's very important to appreciate. And once you hear her tell the story, you re- all the other stories you hear about all the other women that Ebbetson knew and how she talked to them, it all starts to make much more sense. That Ebbetson was teaching women how beautiful it is to be a woman. And being a woman means taking care of your house. Being a woman means taking care of your husband. Being a woman means taking care of your children. And get all the stories you want. And there are many people, many women who did Ebbetson. She always talked to the women about their clothing being nice. She wanted to know where they shopped and what they bought. And she would make comments. Not just about the children, the clothes the women were wearing, but the clothes they bought for their children. She talked about cooking. You know, that she once complained that Everton said, I grew up in a royal house, I never learned how to cook. And it's a shud. If I learned how to cook, I would make better food for my husband. Um, she was constantly teaching women what Mrs. Hager calls the lessons of domesticity. You know, we live in the age of madness. This is a crazy world. We're just all cuckoo, 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 cuckoo. And we're all voluntarily carrying around the cuckoo in our pocket called the smartphone that makes us all stupid. It's tragic. Tragic. It's unbelievable. It's a very, very sad generation. It's very, very sad. It's unfortunate. It's life. We've got to deal with it. Maybe she gave us these experiences. We've got to deal with them and whatever. Um, but when the Rebbe, you know, 30 years ago, it was pretty nuts. Not as crazy as today, but plenty crazy. And part of that is women's liberation. You know, what liberated women? Does anybody know what liberated women? So, of course, what do you guys know? You're little, yeah? Um, I was a kid in the 70s. The ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment, made liberated women. And women were going to be like like everybody else, so on and so forth. What liberated women, to be very honest, is such benign things as the freezer, the refrigerator, the washing machine, the dishwasher, the electric iron. No, this is true. A woman spent a whole day and a whole night taking care of her house. And now machines are doing 80% of that. So what she can do at a time? She's going to go on the street and protest. I want to be like men. <laughs> I'm sorry for breaking it down that way, but it's actually pretty precise. And, you know, Lubavitcher girls, I have a grandmother, she wasn't a Lubavitcher. She said, Lubavitcher girls were never imprisoned. They didn't need to be liberated. My grandmother was not a Lubavitcher. And she loved Lubavitchers. And she loved what she saw in my sisters. Um, Lubavitcher girls are liberated. But Lubavitcher girls are not boys. They're girls. And they will be women. And they'll be mothers. And they're going to be wives. I should say it the other way. They're going to be wives and they're going to be mothers. And the Rebison was teaching them this lesson every chance she got. And when I hear these stories, I look back at it in hindsight. And remember, this is me telling you how I feel and giving you my opinion. That's all this is. But the Rebison spent so much time talking to every lady she knew about being a wife and being a mother because the Rebison understood how much it's uncool to do those things in the modern world. And she wanted to make it cool. She wanted girls who were college educated, I'm not trying to advocate college, but Mrs. Hager is a college educated woman to appreciate that the old fashioned values of looking after your husband, that's what a woman does. The old-fashioned values of a woman taking care of her children and her home has to be beautiful and has to be a home. A home is not a museum. A home where people live and things spill and accidents happen and has that warmth and it has that sense of peace and harmony. She was constantly, 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 constantly teaching this to women and girls because she wanted them to learn this lesson. And Mrs. Hager says in her interviews, you can see her speak, it wasn't natural to her. She was a liberated girl. She grew up in the 70s when women were saying, you know what the Rebbe said about women's liberation. Women's liberation is a very appropriate idea. It's a logical idea. It's a legitimate idea. It's a true idea. But what is women's liberation? The freedom of a woman to be 
a woman. And the reality of women's liberation, it was the freedom of women to be men. How sad is that? How tragic is that? How foolish is that? Um, and this is what happened in the 70s. Women decided the way to be liberated is to be like men. And this, I think, if, if, in other words, I told you when I started my talk, I don't want to be a bunch of stories, because I'm not as, it's just a waste of time to tell stories. If there's a lesson that I could leave you with, which I know you need to hear, it's this. Get those tapes. Listen to Mrs. Hager tell her story about her relationship with the Rebetzin. There's a clip. She spoke to Neshei Chabad two years after the Rebetzin passed away. She's a shy lady. She's a, she's, a, she's a queen herself. She's a regal woman. But she's not a public person. It was very difficult for her. She wrote her speech down word for word. She sent it into the Rebbe to edit before she gave her talk. It was the first time somebody who knew the Rebetzin well spoke about her publicly. And she asked the Rebbe permission. And the Rebbe encouraged her to talk about the Rebetzin. Encouraged her to talk about the Rebetzin. And there's a clip of her walking by the Rebbe for dollars after her talk. And she says to the Rebbe, I spoke about the Rebetzin. And I hope I honored her. I hope I did what would have been appropriate for her. And I, I forget the exact wording, but the spirit of it is the Rebbe says, and I hope you learned the lessons that she taught you. So she says, yes to take care of my family. And the Rebbe says to her, to take care of your husband. And she says, yes, yes, yes. First, I take care of my husband. I think I'm giving it to you correctly. I think I'm repeating accurately. But there's so much in those few seconds. Because the Rebbe said to her, what did my wife teach you? That of course you can have a career, and you can be a shlucha, and you can save the world. You're first of all, a wife and a mother. But she says to the Rebbe, a mother. And the Rebbe says to her, a wife. Before you look after your children, look after your husband. How weird is that? Huh? How much is that a part of how you think? You're in a different generation. This is what the Rebbe is teaching, forgive me for saying, but the Rebbe is teaching this to you. And she wants you to learn these lessons. These are Jewish lessons. These are timeless lessons. These are real lessons. You don't become a less of a person when you look after your husband. You become more of a person. You don't become less of a person when you make the number one priority in your life your children. You become more of a person. And if there's anything that you could say that Ebbetson taught more than anything else to the people she knew, it was this lesson. And if Chav Beishvat has meaning, and if I said, you know, we don't, we don't want to think about the Ebbetson. We don't begin to understand what it means to be a Ebbetson. I mean, there are stories about the Rebetzin. Dr. Feldman said once, Bosni Yeshiva, he said, I can tell you as a matter of fact that the Rebetzin had ruach HaKodesh. He said, she knew things that there's no way she knew. The Rebetzin never walked around on the streets. Never. Never. She didn't come to show Ever. Dr. Feldman was a family practitioner in Crown Heights, which meant that, let's say, on average, half the Lubavitch Brachis Crown Heights went to him for medical treatment. And in the from community, you have thousands of kids. Thousands of kids. The rabbits knew every child by name. And every child who went to his office for whatever she knew. And she would ask him questions. How did she know? How? How did she know? The Rebbe came home and gave her a list of all the Misha Beirachs. The Rebbe was a holy lady. There's things about her we can't understand. And I, if you noticed, I didn't tell a single miracle story that I avoided all of that. I gave you a simple talk. I didn't tell you the stories that I have. A lot of good stories that I could have told you. I want you to take away this. I really want you to think about this. That if there's a lesson that the Rebetzin left for Jewish women, is I'm old-fashioned. And the Rebetzin was very modern. But I'm old-fashioned. I take care of my husband. My home, the Rebetzin's home was very simple. The Rebetzin lived, I would say, almost on a poverty level. They, they had a big house which didn't belong to them, it belonged to Americans, and they lived so simply. But the Rebetzin took care of it. Well, the Rebetzin once told a friend of hers that they were living in a room in Vichy, in the south of France, when they ran away from the Nazis. They didn't have any furniture. So they had these trunks, these big old suitcases, these heavy trunks, and she opened them up, and she arranged the clothing in the trunks like as if it were a drawer. She looked pretty. So that when you walked into the room, you felt like... There was something homey about it. You understand? She was very sensitive to be a balabosta. And she didn't, she wasn't lavish. She was not someone who needed a lot. 
but she wanted to do what a wife and a mother are supposed to do. And I think above all else, this is a lesson that you could take from her. And if it's hard for you to learn this lesson, I understand that. But hard doesn't mean wrong. Hard means this is part of what you need to do. You know, you're going you're to be a wife. You're going to be a mother. Those things are what the Rebbe is teaching you are the most important lessons in your life. If you can learn those lives, it means Hashem, you'll have more happiness, and more success, and more brachas, not only in being a wife and a mother, but all the incredible things that girls do today, but lachem and we'll see that Rebbe and the Rebbe one more time. Okay, good Shabbos. <laughs>